Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, it's not a new organ, but just what is the role of the interstitium? The gallbladder, the the bile ducts, nasal mucosa, organs like that, and, and they have what's called a submucosa. And that's what the interstitium is. It's in between tissue. An orthopedic surgeon will tell about the same-day knee replacement surgery that's now available. The trend continues to go to shorter and shorter hospitalizations and now to outpatient surgery. What we found is that patients that spend longer periods in the hospital actually have increased complications. And we'll hear about the efforts of a dedicated pediatrician who launched a successful diaper bank. The families have, when surveyed, demonstrated this has been a tremendous both mental and physical benefit for their families. All that in a selection from our Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about which patients are candidates for a new same-day knee replacement surgery. Then we'll talk with a pediatrician who started a diaper bank. But first, we'll explore some human anatomy with a description of the function of the interstitium. You may have seen headlines in recent weeks about a new organ discovered in the human body called the interstitium. So to discuss this, I have with me in the studio Dr. Barry Berg. He's a retired emeritus professor who continues to do some teaching. Um, He earned multiple teaching awards during his more than four decades of teaching full-time at Upstate, and there's a scholarship in his name for a student in the College of Medicine. Among his many roles, Dr. Berg taught anatomy to thousands of medical students and physical therapy students, so he's really ideal for talking about this subject. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So these headlines were really eye-catching about this new organ that um, has been discovered. What was your reaction? Uh, Skeptic, skeptical at first. Um, And then I read the original article and... The journal paper. The journal is called Scientific Reports. It's an online journal published by Nature. Okay. And um, I read the article was not surprised to find there was not one mention of a new organ. So it kind of brought back a memory to me of when I was in graduate school at UCLA, I was doing my postdoctoral research, working with a fellow who'd done a lot of research on the eye. And he made his key discovery was that certain of the photoreceptor cells were able to renew a portion of themselves. And this was presented along with other work at a symposium. Um, The next day, big headlines in the LA Times, UCLA scientist discovers cells in the brain can renew themselves. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, it was a big (laughs) thing because most cells in the brain do not renew themselves. And that's not what he found. But following that article, he had hundreds of calls 
people begging to have their eyes donated so hopefully you can make them see. So it was a great headline, but it wasn't exactly scientifically accurate. Um, this story uh, does have its, its merits. Um, they're using a new, a relatively new mechanism to study human tissue. Um, as an aside, I just read an art, a book where they use similar techniques to study uh, connective tissue in the human body, fascia in the human body. So it's a new way of looking at the interstitium, but it is not a new organ. They don't claim it, and it really isn't. So the researchers didn't say use that phrase, but a no. journalist... Um... Well, the, the, the new scientist, which is kind of a magazine, I don't know, like maybe popular mechanics or something, um, they were the ones who coined the term new organ. So what this article reports, the, 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 the main article, is looking at the human interstitium. Now, we have known, people have known about the interstitium, uh, well, at least longer than I've been alive, and that's a long time, uh, but for hundreds and hundreds of years. So what is the interstitium? Interstitium, if you look at it, and some people will have different definitions, but it's, it's sort of like loose packing tissue. Mm. It's tissue that uh, fills in spaces. Um, probably the best, they did a lot of work on the, the gallbladder, the, the bile ducts, um, nasal mucosa, uh, other organ, uh, organs like that, and, and they have what's called a submucosa. And, and that's what the interstitium is. It's in between tissue. Is it just in the abdomen? No, it's, it's all over. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Oh, okay. Now, the, 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 one of the things I'd like to mention about that is people who study fluid balance in, in the in human body, um, about 60% of our fluid is contained within the cell. It's called intracellular fluid. The other 40% is divided between fluid in the blood vessels and fluid in the interstitium. Mm. And in order to have exchange, oxygen, CO2, nutrients, waste, things like that, it's got to pass from the cell to the interstitium into the um, excuse me, the blood vessels, cells, interstitium cells. There are conditions such as edema or hemorrhage. Edema being swelling. Edema swelling, yeah. Where fluid remains in the interstitium. And that's called third spacing. Hmm. Or you have one space is the cell, the other the vascular third, the interstitium. Um, the other thing the article makes a big point about is that it can, it, it, there are these thin lymphatic vessels in the interstitium. Normally what they do is help 
return tissue fluid to the venous system. Um, but it's also a mechanism for the spread of cancer. So what these people did, I think, that in my, in my view, the, the best part is they, about 50 years ago, when electron microscopy was really popular, everyone looked at different cells and tissues. There may not have been a lot of new discoveries, but there are things that you could not see without the electron microscope that all of a sudden became visible. And people studied how that added or subtracted to the function. Um, so what these people found are different channels that they think will help connect with lymphatics, not only help drainage, but help could help in the spread of cancer. Well, you mentioned that they're using a, a new mechanism. Is it a microscope? or what? How are they looking uh, at this differently? They use two things. One is a confocal microscopy. Now, that isn't new, that new because a lot of the research going on in, in anatomy, for example, has to do with confocal microscopy. It allows you to look at living tissue in a way that's never been done before. Mm, okay. So that's one thing. The other is to use, you know, when, when you have a problem in your gut and they put a, a tube in, it's mm -hmm. called an endoscope. So now they're using endoscopic techniques to study tissue. Hmm. And so those are the two major mechanisms or um, ways they use to study this tissue. And it's never been done before. And it, it points out some very interesting structures in the interstitium. They relate it to the functioning of the interstitium, but they do not say it's a new organ. They're finding maybe new, new substructure and correlating that with possibly new functions. Interesting. I've got some more questions, but first, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Barry Berg, an expert in anatomy about the interstitium. And you sort of described it as packing tissue. Um, I wanted to ask, like, functionally, what does it, does it keep the, the or other organs in place, or what does it do? Um, one of the things is it, 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 it can keep organs in place. If you look at... <laughs> you took a look at my belly, you'd find a lot of fatty cells in that tissue. So it protects, provides energy, but it's mainly a, a type of, of loose connective tissue, meaning it has collagen fibers, some reticular fibers. Um, there are cells in it. Most of the cells come from either uh, blood cells that come in there, to come in the interstitium to eat up dirt, bacteria, things like that. Um, but it mainly, it supports the, let me go, if, if you take a look at an organ. Like a liver or a gallbladder? A liver, gallbladder, stomach. You start off with a cell. From the cell, the next level is our tissues, which in Latin meant textures. So you have epithelial tissue, 
connective tissue, muscle, nerve. Those tissues combine in different proportions in different ways to form an organ. So I think these if you take an organ like the, the intestine, the most inside, the deepest layer is called the epithelium. The epithelium is epithelial tissue. Under that is what's called the lamina propria, which is a loose form of electric, uh, uh, connective tissue, but has a lot of lymphocytes, fibroblasts, and, 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 lymph, and um, cells that will fight infection. Then you have the submucosa, which supports the mucous membrane. It has nerves, blood vessels that are necessary to support the other tissues. So that's mainly what it's doing. And as I said before, it helps in the exchange between the capillary, the vascular space and the intracellular space. Does it spread cancer? Or does it help it, cancer spread? Yes, yes, because it, the, uh, from what I understand, there are two major ways cancer can metastasize. One is through the venous system. Through the bloodstream? Yeah, it goes in the venous system and out, and the lymphatic system. And you do have small vest lymphatic vessels in that area, so it is a way for cancer, tumor cells to get in and spread. Um, and what the article postulates is that some of the structures that they found will aid in the spread of material through the lymphatic huh. system. Gotcha. Well, I think mm -hmm. one of the things this uh, article about this, you know, new organ mm -hmm. or whatever, um, it, it brought to mind, you know, what is an organ? What, I mean, what makes something an organ? Ah, great question. You must have been studying. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you the, hear... No, no the, reason, the reason I mentioned that is we tend to think of cells, tissues, organs. Organs are an arrangement of one or more of the four basic tissues that provides a certain function. And so we think of organs being mainly solid organs, stomach, liver, heart, testicles, ovaries, these are all organs. And if you put, for example, the, the heart and blood vessels together, now you have your cardiovascular system. Okay. Okay, which is to pump and cause exchange of blood. Uh, you have your lungs, your chest, blood vessels that form the respiratory system. So the respiratory, if you look at the lungs, the trachea, bronchi, that's all different organs that make up that one system. Is there, are there organs that are in more than one system? I mean, if you do cardiopulmonary, that's heart and lungs, right? Those are two different systems. They're two different systems, yeah. but yeah. the lungs or the heart would be in both, right? Or not? Not necessarily. A pulmonologist is not going to study the heart. Cardiologist does not study the lungs. There are overlaps, but those are yeah, the main organ systems, digestive, respiratory, endocrine, uh, nervous uh, brain, spinal cord, peripheral nerves. 
So there's not usually not much overlap. So where does the skin fit in? Because oh, skin is an organ. But most people wouldn't think of it as an organ. But what makes it an organ? The skin is the largest organ in the body. And it's an organ because it's made up of a number of different tissues. So you have the epithelium, epidermis, is the outer layer. The dermis is the next layer, and that contains blood vessels, it contains nerves, it contains sen different sense receptors, and that's what, that would be analogous to the interstitium because it's a lot of connective tissue. Hmm. And then below that is the hypodermis is mainly fatty tissue. Put those together, epithelium, connective, fat, nerve, muscle, glands, there's your, that's an organ. So the skin is considered an organ. What about bones? Uh, that's a, that's a, well, bone is a type of connective tissue. Uh, bones are the basic tissue, um, osseous tissue, bone tissue, that forms the basis of bones. But each bone can be considered an organ because it's made up of bone, connective, blood, and even a little epithelium. Put all the bones together, you have the skeletal system. This has been very interesting. I, I want to thank you for your time coming in to discuss oh, this. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Um, uh, my guest yeah. has been anatomy professor, Dr. Barry Berg. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next... Are you a candidate for same-day knee replacement surgery? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A growing number of people who need knee replacements are going home the same day they have their surgery. Here to talk about this trend is Dr. Timothy Damron. He's vice chairman for orthopedic surgery at Upstate, and he has patients who opt for outpatient total joint replacement. Thank you for taking time to do this interview. It's my pleasure, Amber. So it's interesting to me that a person could come in and have a joint replaced and go home that afternoon or evening because I thought joint replacements were these major operations? Well, they are major operations, but when I started in training, we actually admitted the patients the night before and kept them in the hospital about a week or so. So things have changed drastically over the time that I have been in practice. And we've seen them go to, you know, admitting the day of surgery and then going home several days afterwards, limiting their weight bearing for a period of six weeks to the current practice, which is sort of standard, and that is that they come in, get their operation, and usually go home in two to three days. 
Uh, that's the current practice, but the trend continues to go to shorter and shorter hospitalizations, and now with this leap to outpatient surgery. And the reason is that over this course of time, what we found is that patients that spend longer periods in the hospital actually have increased complications. So the shorter time that they spend in the hospital, the better the outcome. So more time in the hospital equals more, like what kinds of complications? Infections. Okay. Readmissions after discharge, that sort of thing. Hospitals are not the best place to spend a long period of time. So you should try to get out of the hospital as soon as you can after surgery. And again, with the outpatient program, uh, spending just the day of surgery is an optimal situation. So is that kind of the reason that um, total joint replacement patients in general are spending less time in the hospitals? It all have to do with the complications, or are there other advances? That's part of it. The other part of it is that increasingly with the baby boomer population, we're operating on younger patients, and these younger patients are increasingly active, and they want to do more, and they want to recover more quickly, and they want to be out of the hospital and back to their normal activities more quickly. And so there's been a push from that side as well. And then the third prong of this component of this uh, perspective is that the government just recently approved this procedure as an outpatient procedure. So it, they took it off their list of uh, procedures that can't be performed as outpatient procedures. So those three things have kind of combined at this point in time to uh, make it optimal to try to do more outpatient total joints. And at this point, we're just talking about knees, but there's other joint replacements that may be down the road. That's correct. Uh, in the past, partial knee replacements have been done as an outpatient. And that is pretty easy to do because patients with partial knee replacements recover pretty quickly. They have less pain. So that's a natural. Total hips and total knees hadn't been approved for outpatient uh, discharge. Currently, with the approval by um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for just total knees, that's going to be the new thing. But total hips shouldn't follow that far behind. Uh, total hips are actually, in my opinion, easier to recover from than total knees. So I, I wouldn't imagine that it would be too far behind. So are these operations um, being done just in hospitals, or, or one-day surgery centers are now able to do this? Or That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. So there's different situations, um, different uh, settings that these can be done in. One is the hospital setting, and that's how we're starting. We're starting out in our a standard surgery center uh, at Community General Hospital, and we'll be doing the outpatient uh, knee, re- knee replacements there, and then the patients will be discharged home the same day directly from the hospital. The nice thing about that situation is that there's the backup. If they, at the end of the day, when we would normally discharge them home from their uh, what we call swift knee program and protocol, Uh, If they're not ready to go, if we still are having some issues with pain control or other medical issues, then they can simply be admitted to the hospital. No problems. There are um, other settings such as hospital-based ambulatory surgery centers that are physically accessible to the hospital 
where it's also similar to uh, our situation, where you can do the surgery in the setting of the surgery center, uh, and then if there's the need for admission, they can be directly admitted to the physically adjacent hospital, and that's not a big problem. The difficulty comes when these are done in the ambulatory surgery center that is a freestanding physical structure. And that is being done increasingly across the country. Um, and it's attractive, but uh, it does bring up the problem that at the end of the day, if the patient is not ready to go home, what do you do with that patient? Uh, and some places have gone to incorporating a 23-hour care uh, option, but if they don't have approval to do that, then they have to be transferred to a hospital. And 23 hours would be you leave 23 hours after you're, You'd you stay get there, so you're overnight, not technically. Yeah, but you would have to leave by noon. Okay. So. Wow. Well, interesting. Um, well, I've got a lot more questions about this, but let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Timothy Damron about outpatient total knee replacement surgery, um, which is becoming an option in this community. So which patients might qualify for the one day? I, I don't imagine all patients would be candidates for this. So which ones are the best candidates for one day? That's correct. Not every patient that comes through the door is going to qualify for this. We're starting out with a fairly stringent uh, requirements uh, in terms of health. Um, we want to have the healthiest patients start in this program. Uh, patients also have to be motivated. They have to want to do this. Uh, we're not certainly not trying to force this on anyone. If they're not interested in doing this as an outpatient, then you know we certainly have the option of admitting them and keeping them the day or two afterwards in the hospital in the usual program. Patients that have multiple medical problems that are poorly controlled, such as cardiac disease, poorly controlled diabetes, morbid obesity, these sorts of problems. Uh, sometimes they're not even candidates for surgery, but they're certainly not candidates for outpatient swift knee program. So they may need more monitoring afterward. Exactly. And there are certainly higher risk for complications. Um, is there an age cutoff or not necessarily? That's an interesting point. Some people would say that there is an age cutoff. Um, there are other experts across the country that have done them at uh, quite advanced ages and had good success. What about for the patient who lives alone? Is that part of the factor you have to consider what they're going home to? If they live alone, is that safe for them to do? Um, That's a very good point. Um, we like to have these patients have what we call a joint coach, which is a person at home that can help them. And prior to the operation, go to the preparatory classes with them, uh, help them with the prehab, which is the preoperative um, rehabilitation and physical therapy so that that person can uh, help get them through that early post-operative period. Uh, in addition, we hope to have nurse at, uh, navigators that will help to uh, contact the patients and uh, make sure that uh, they're not having any problems in the early post-operative period. But sending a patient home on their own without any backup or support is uh, not optimal. What uh, you mentioned prehab, are there differences in the preparation from the patient's point of view for outpatient versus inpatient? Is there something they do differently if they know they're going to come home versus they know they're going to stay in the hospital? 
Well, we're certainly going to emphasize the preoperative physical therapy aspect of this more for our patients that are going through the SWIFT knee program than we have in the past for the standard uh, total knees. Um, in the past, the emphasis has always been on having them do physical therapy at home initially for the first couple of weeks and having a physical therapist come into the home. And then after that first couple of weeks, having the therapist uh, work with them as an outpatient. So they go to an outpatient physical therapy facility. Now the emphasis will be on having them work on those exercises beforehand so they know the exercises. So hopefully they can work on those on their own afterwards. Okay. What about um, in terms of the surgery itself? You as the surgeon, is there something you do differently um, when you know it's a patient who's going to be going home that day? Actually, as a surgeon, we don't really do anything differently. There is a lot, though, that's done differently with anesthesia. So anesthesia has to fine-tune what they do so that the patient is recovering from the anesthetic in a short enough period of time that they can get up and get walking shortly after they hit the recovery room. Because as you can imagine, even if you have a patient that is done early in the morning, if it takes them several hours to recover from their spinal anesthetic or general anesthetic, and they're just waking up late in the afternoon, then they really don't have time to get up, get walking, be approved by physical therapy for discharge before they go home. Good point. All right. Um, you mentioned that this um, has been approved uh, by Medicaid and Medicare, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare, for what to be a one-day procedure. So there must be some studies that have been done to show whether the outcome is different, right? There have been numerous studies. And that's the encouraging thing is that, you know, the initial gut feeling is, boy, you know, this is a push. Is this really safe for our patients? But increasingly, studies have come out showing that, indeed, it is safe for our patients. And, in fact, the outcomes you know, may be better for our healthy patients, certainly not for uh, those that have increased morbidity or more, uh, increased comorbidities, but for our healthy patients, uh, they're recovering more quickly. Interesting. Well, this is fascinating to consider. Um, while I have you here, let me ask you, for patients that you know have knees that they know at some point they're going to need a replacement of some sort, how do you coach them to determine what time in their life is right to go forward with the replacement surgery? Well, I think every surgeon has their own little spiel that they go through with the patients. Um, but I always tell my patients, this is not cancer and this is not heart disease that needs immediate surgery. It's something that you should put off until you feel that you're ready to accept the risks because there are still risks. And once you have failed conservative care and are ready to go through it, then come back, talk to me, and uh, we'll go through things at that time. Because you want to do it before you're, you don't want your health to decline just so that you're not really a good candidate, but right? I mean, True, so. but the vast majority of people don't get to that point. Um, you mentioned that there are some risks. What what are the risks, and what is the recovery like? Um, what do you have to kind of consider before you say this time? Well, one one thing I emphasize with my patients with respect to total knees as opposed to total hips are the two Ps, pain and physical therapy. Because regardless of what we do, regardless of what anesthesia does, the best job that we can do, it's still going to cause pain. And so Mentally, I think they have to be prepared to deal with the pain postoperatively. And that plays into the second P, and that's the physical therapy. 
Because if they can't accept the pain and try to work through the pain in physical therapy, it's going to be very difficult. Physical therapy is particularly important to get the range of motion because if the patients don't work through the pain, can't work with the therapist or work on their own to get their range of motion, then they're going to end up with a stiff knee, and that's not a good outcome. Yeah, that would be the whole reason that you wouldn't have wanted to do it anyway. But um, how long do people have to go through physical therapy? I mean, this is this six weeks, eight weeks, several months before you get back to where you were before? Well, increasingly, uh, as we talked about briefly before, we're doing less and less formal physical therapy. Uh, in the past, patients have gone to physical therapy for months at a time. Uh, again, it started with the outpatient physical therapy uh, after the first two weeks, and then just basically continuing physical therapy until they were happy with the range of motion in their knee. Our typical goal now is to get at least 120 degrees of flexion. So that's from full extension, straightening of the knee, all the way past a right angle, and then up another 30 degrees. And then at that point in time, if they're happy, then uh, physical therapy is pretty much done. done. But uh, now we increasingly rely on the patients to do a lot of that work on their own. So there's going to be less emphasis on the physical therapist actually doing that work. And the patient's actually doing. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, Thank you so much for talking about the swift knee. My guest has been Dr. Timothy Damron, Vice Chairman for Orthopedic Surgery at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, a pediatrician who started a diaper bank on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The journal Contemporary Pediatrics named an upstate pediatrician as a pediatric change maker this year, and we're very happy to have Dr. Winterberry with us in the studio today. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You uh, did your pediatric residency at Upstate from 2010 to 2013 um, in Syracuse when 50% of the Syracuse children were living in poverty, and Syracuse had the highest concentration of poverty for black and Hispanic children in the country. And for some people, that might be a reason not to settle in Syracuse. But for you, that was part of what made you want to stay. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, When starting my residency, I had the opportunity to work in the same clinic as a trainee and really learned the value and the joy of taking care of the families of Syracuse. And um, I would argue that the poverty experience in Syracuse is a challenge, not a detriment to our population. And I think these families are actually really wonderful to take care of. They're grateful people, they're resilient people, and they're people who just like any other parents care about their children and want them to grow up to be healthy, happy adults. And I think um, part of what contributes to the 
beautiful patchwork of our city is that you get to take care of kids from sort of all walks of life, but also all, all, all parts of the world. Um, and it's really nice to take care of a city full of kids who come from places where they've experienced adversity, but they're coming here to uh, start the rest of their lives. Well, as a doctor, that's, I imagine, got to be gratifying. It, it seems like you've got a position where you are needed. Absolutely. can make a big impact. Absolutely. And I think any pediatrician makes an impact in the life of any child, really. But there are very concrete things that we can uh, ask a family about, talk to the family about, guide them on, and um, try to make a difference in the very early days of their lives when the building blocks are being put together for the kids' later success. Neat. Well, this um, award or recognition, the Pediatric Changemaker, that ties into your um, work with a diaper bank. So talk to me about what made you want to start a diaper bank and and how it works. Um, So as a trainee, I think I was sort of given a crash course of sorts in what diaper need meant. Um, And for anyone who hasn't talked and read about this as obsessively as I have. Um, Diaper Need loosely is when a family doesn't have the financial resources to be able to purchase diapers to change their child as often as they'd like or need to to keep them happy and healthy and clean. Um, When I was a resident, I took a call on a weekend night from a mom who said, my child's had a stomach bug. And so expectedly, we've gone through our whole supply of diapers for the month very quickly. And I don't have anything to buy more. And so my child's in a plastic bag. What can you do for me? And you can imagine that's a devastating call as a mom to have to make. And I felt even worse that I didn't have anywhere to point her at the time. And it's not as a criticism of the city. It just wasn't really built into the infrastructure, I think, recognized locally at the time that this was a need for some of our families. Um, And so... I had that story in the back of my mind, and then in the that same journal that I was lucky enough to be featured in, Contemporary Pediatrics had an article about the concept of a diaper bank and what it meant. Uh, that was written by a woman who um, uh, runs Diaper Bank National Network, um, and she introduced the idea that some communities put together resources for families to be able to go to just like a food bank and get diapers. Um, and so that started in my office through a grant from the Upstate Foundation in a very small way. If you can picture my office um, full of stacks of diapers, that's how it worked in the beginning. But we realized that our need in clinic quickly outpaced what I was able to provide. And so thankfully... So originally, the diaper bank was your office. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, I stress this is a very small operation. This was um, literally myself and one of the nurse practitioners, Wendy Broughton, in our office going to a local um, business and buying ridiculous amounts of diapers and bringing them back to our clinic in her minivan. Um, But thankfully, there was a like-minded group of women in our community who started a much more formal, larger, sustainable central New York diaper bank that we've been lucky enough to partner with um, since November of 2016. They started in May 2016. We came on board in November, and they've been able to provide us a much more sustainable supply. So why is diaper need so high? It's got to be tied to poverty, right? Why is it? Why is the diaper need so high, though? Um, It's tied to poverty, but it also can be experienced by families who wouldn't be thought of as traditionally impoverished um, from time to time. So um, diapers as a commodity are relatively expensive. The typical person who has a diapered child spends about $100 a month on diapers, and that's not an insignificant cost. But that's 
um, compounded by families who are otherwise regularly in poverty um, because they're not able to buy diapers in bulk if they don't have a large amount of disposable income to buy. And so the cost per diaper goes up considerably if you're buying in smaller quantities. Um, or they're not able to get online deals if they can't buy with a credit card, et cetera. Um, and they experience ongoing need because the expense of diapers is not supported by other federal assistance programs. Um, things like WIC, SNAP, and TANF um, supplement families financially for things like food, housing, et cetera, but none of those address diaper costs. And so that really comes out of a family's probably small discretionary. Well, that's why I was funds. wondering whether like food stamps or whatever would cover the, it's a necessity, but um, it's not covered by any of the government programs. Then you have that exactly right. Diapering wow. your child is absolutely a basic need and something every parent should be able um, to feel like they can provide for their child, even if they need support in doing so, and it's currently not supported. Well, if I understand correctly, since 2016, um, the diaper bank has distributed more than 300,000 diapers in the Syracuse area. Um, that's a lot. So how does this work? Does someone go, does someone have to learn about the diaper bank and go there and say that they need diapers or how do they, how do they get connected? So it depends on which agency, uh, community partner agency, the um, family is um, receiving their diapers from. But just as you said, um, the awareness has to be out there in the community and a surprising number of families who could benefit from a diaper bank are not aware of them. That's nationally, not just a local issue. So one of the aims of the diaper bank is both to address diaper need by providing the diapers themselves, but also to make people aware of what's out there. Um, so the Central New York Diaper Bank partners with um, around 15 agencies in the community, and that can range from food banks to churches to the rescue mission. We're just one of the partner agencies. Um, for families who come to our clinic, because we have this wonderful sustaining supply from the Central New York Diaper Bank, it allows us to screen families at their well-child visits for diaper needs. So if you have a child under three, well, my wonderful nurses are putting them in a room. They ask the families if that's something um, they're experiencing. And if they screen positive, then they s receive a supply of diapers right there in clinic the same day. They also get information from us about what other community agencies are out there that they can um, utilize if they have need outside of times they're in our office. So they're, they're screened to make sure that there really is a need and they're not, I mean, anyone would probably be happy with a small child be happy to receive diapers but you screen to make sure that there's a bona fide need and I would argue um, that really any family qualifying for other assistance programs may be experiencing diaper need at some if not all times so it's really not hard to determine if someone is eligible but also remember that some families who might have on paper really impressive income can have circumstantial financial difficulties that would make it more challenging and experience diaper need. And we really haven't found there have been, there's been anyone sinister in the community coming to get diapers that didn't need them. It's really been a positive experience. The um, potential naysayers, I think, have been quieted by the fact that this really is a need. And the families have, when surveyed, demonstrated this has been a tremendous both mental and physical benefit for their families. There's a tremendous stress reduction when you know that you can provide diapers for your baby. And let me uh, tell listeners that uh, they can get more information at cnydiaperbank.org online. Um, and also, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Winterberry. Um, and I have some other questions for you. I read um, an article where you said that you and the other faculty 
here at Upstate, train residents to practice pediatrics in a culturally humble way. Um, what does that mean? Uh, we want residents to recognize that a family's choices, both social family values, the way they approach medical care, and their life experience up until the time they walk in our door, may be very different than ours, but no less valid. And by ours, I mean those in the medical establishment, that, not that we're homogenous people otherwise, but um, that by virtue of becoming a physician or provider, your life may look differently than the families you're caring for. And um, that understanding the families you're caring for helps you provide better care to them. It also means understanding that for a socioeconomically challenged population, there are things that unless you recognize them and address them may be affecting their decision-making, their ability to, ability to carry out care plans, et cetera. Um, the catchphrase for this is social determinants of health. So things about the family's um, life outside the office that um, may place stressors or trauma on them or their children and um, how they're able to interact with the medical system. So social determinants of health is kind of a big phrase, but those are things like um, whether a family has transportation or adequate food, right? Absolutely. So things that um, people less economically challenged might take for granted um, can really make it difficult for a family um, even from the beginning to bond with a child. So if um, you can imagine if a mother, to use the example of diaper need, is worried she may not be able to diaper her baby, that stress can be um, quite impactful. Uh, things like transportation to and from visits, um, having stable and safe housing, being able to keep the utilities running, food insecurity, um, families who are even those who are supported by federal assistance programs um, still may experience food insecurity um, in a way that can be quite challenging for them. Uh, let me ask you this, with the with Diaper Bank um, in operation, is that designed to help um, relieve some of the poverty in Syracuse, or do you see that getting better at all? Um, I think the solutions to poverty are really complex and a multi-pronged issue. Um, I see the diapers we're supply, supplying to families as a means to a, a specific end. So obviously our, our supplemental supply of diapers is not solely solving problems for any family, but what it might make the difference of is allowing a parent to drop their child off at daycare. So if you have enough diapers to send your child to daycare, you can then go look for work or go to school or complete an educational program or go to work yourself. Um, and one might say those are potential benefits, but do they actually bear out? And thankfully, um, the Diaper Bank of Connecticut and University of Connecticut have done recently some great research that objectifies this. Um, they studied families who were receiving a diaper supply um, in the in their area in Connecticut and were able to demonstrate um, reduced instances of things like diaper rash and urinary tract infections and therefore saved medical cost and increased economic outcomes for the families themselves. So if you can go to school, go to work, finish whatever degree you're working on, um, it does make a very tangible difference for the family. And I think that's only one way to go about it. There are lots of um, systemic issues to be addressed. Um, to address poverty in our city. Um, we're just trying to sort of on a child-by-child -child basis make one less thing stressful for families who may otherwise be struggling. Wow. Well, it's 
certainly good news that you're um, involved in this, and I appreciate you being here to talk about it. Um, my guest has been Dr. Winter Berry, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Nursing students and medical students learn how to deliver bad news. They are told to choose their words carefully, to recognize that each patient processes the news differently. Sarah Perkle Hughes, who teaches literature at Middle Georgia State U., gives us a wonderful example of this in her essay, When the Doctor Says Cancer. You hear not cancer. Funny how the brain rejects the word cancer, two syllables that can change the trajectory of your life so much that your brain inserts a third to negate the whole meaning. Minutes later, when the doctor uses words like oncologist, chemotherapy, mastectomy, you begin to doubt the initial relief you felt at not cancer. She hands you a pamphlet entitled Coping with Breast Cancer. The words sit in a row like birds on a telephone wire, visible but utterly out of reach. You say, wait, so it is cancer? And the doctor nods. Yes, it is cancer. You have cancer. It is aggressive. Treatment must begin immediately. You feel sorry for her. It's unfair she must convince you that the biopsy results were the worst-case scenario. Still, you don't believe her. That night when you try saying, I have cancer to your mother, it sounds like a lie. You have spent years studying English, years teaching it, but I have cancer is a sentence your brain does not comprehend, a sentence that belongs to someone else. But now you sit on the exam table staring at the hot pink laces in your new sneakers, The doctor hands you a box of Kleenex before walking out of the room as if to say, you should be crying right now. You hold the tissues the way a child holds a box of frozen waffles for her mother who has left the kitchen, wondering when she's coming back. The nurse, who has been in the room the whole time, pats your shoulder and says, you're young, but you're not that young. You push the Kleenex box into the nurse's hands. She sets it on the counter and says she's going to give you a minute to process. The door closes with a soft clunk. Your wilted husband stumbles toward you from the corner where he's been slumped like a rain-soaked scarecrow. He takes you in his arms. He cries into your neck. You rub his back, tell him to breathe. You murmur, since when was 33 not that young? Your husband chuckles, geez, that would be the one thing you heard. He straightens up, wipes his eyes. Seriously, you say, crossing your arms. I had ice cream for supper last night. Would a not that young person do that? Your husband laughs again, not because it's especially funny, but because after 15 years together, he knows what you need to hear.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, stroke experts answer questions from listeners. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.